Okay, now now we're good to talk. All right. So I had a visceral reaction, but I couldn't say anything. Yeah. Because no. we were in our <laughs> time. I was like, Ethan, you can't mute the microphone. Wait, that why? defeats the entire purpose. What is the purpose? I guess I don't understand the purpose of this. So how's quarantine going? It's going. Nothing really new going on. Kind of feels like life now rather than an interruption in life. Yeah, I I feel the same way. This we I feel like I've hit a new normal and it doesn't feel like we're going to go back to uh the way things were for for quite some time. I do, I don't anticipate things going back to to normal until next year probably yeah. at the earliest. Yeah, and also just the fact, I mean, we both work office jobs where there's really no need to be in the office. And the fact that we've proven that now, I think there's really no going back. Like, it's not, it's never going to look like it was before. We've been at home for six months. And I mean, there have been challenges, but there have not been major work interruptions, I think. So this is just what a lot of people will do, I think. Agreed. Yeah, I think it's definitely going to be hard to get people back into the office, unless that's like their preferred place to work. Which I know for a lot more people than I would have thought that that is true. But for me, for me and my household, we like the work from home. I did get my first haircut during quarantine. Oh, exciting. Yeah, which was great because my hair was out of control. So, And it was an interesting experience because I went in and I wore a mask and I went into the barbershop and it was there was no one else there because it was in the middle. It was a Friday afternoon. Did you go to our shared barbershop, Greg? Our favorite? Yes, yeah, I did. And uh, when I walked in... A few of the barbers were just sitting in their chairs. None of them wearing masks. None of them were wearing oh, masks. That's somehow not very surprising. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so then, but then when I walked in, they were like, oh, we'll put our mask on. So they, they scurry and they put their masks on. And the air conditioning was out in their building. The notable thing of it was I could see like through this sort of like a small hallway into the back where their air conditioner is some technicians working on it to get it back up and running. And of the two guys I saw there, neither of them were wearing masks while they were working. (laughs) And then on my way, that's very reassuring. Exactly. Well, I got even one more, the trifecta here on my way out. Like I get my haircut and I kept my mask on the whole time. And then I go to leave and I'm walking back out to my car and there was a, a delivery truck had arrived and i guess was delivering some part for the technicians and one of the technicians and the delivery driver were talking to each other in the parking lot standing maybe two feet from each other neither of them wearing masks so like nobody none of the interaction the default behavior in this small pod area of exposure that i've had none of them wore masks and I was like, this is not good, guys. Like, this is the problem. This is yeah. really, this is the type of behavior that's going to cause this to to drag on for longer and longer and get worse and worse. I didn't well, say anything. Specifically any... at a barbershop. Yeah. Right. It's like there's so many people in and out of here. That's, yeah. Yes, that was exactly my concern. I mean, my so my barber wore the mask the whole time. It's just, I know they're not being consistent about it. These technicians probably are traveling all around the city. Well, also... Yeah, the thing about employees putting on masks when you walk in, which I have found to be an extremely common trend, is that it doesn't, it it just reflects sort of an inadequate understanding of what the problem is. Like once you breathe out, 
there's something in the air that stays there for some amount of time. So just putting the mask on once somebody else walks in is not effective. Right, right. No, I, I'm with you. It just shows a lack of concern, and they're they're not giving the they're not giving the situation the uh, seriousness it deserves. So, you know, I'm I, I don't have to wear a mask when I work all day because I work from home. So perhaps I just don't get how annoying it can be. But as a customer, like I want the establishments to I want their employees to be wearing masks. Yeah, both for my own personal safety and also just the general public health. Because the only way we're going to get past this is if people are diligent and wear their masks when they should. So anyways, that was like my little, that was my first time leaving the bubble sort of and like interacting with new people in a new place that I hadn't yet since the, um, since coronavirus quarantine started. And I was not reassured. I did not feel great. And I know that Ohio has been criticized a little bit um, as because the general public, the, the adoption of masks has not been, uh, as widespread or consistent as it needs to be so i didn't know that you mean relative to other states i think so and potentially it's just people opining on things they don't really know about but i've just seen blogs and not blogs but like news reports and stuff that are like you know ohio is has potential become another hotspot because people aren't wearing their masks and like the mask adoption rate was only 40 percent like how they got that number i'm not sure yeah. And I know the hmm. governor has been he like pleaded with Ohioans in a press conference to to wear masks. He's like, please, everyone wear masks. This is really important. But he didn't make a mandate. At that time, I don't think there was a mandate to wear masks. So, yeah, that's interesting. I, I wonder how well the government mandates work, because I don't know what the I don't know what exactly the laws are, but I know that they are more strict in Chicago and Adherence is definitely better than Ohio, no doubt. But there's still people, like we just talked about, uh, employees in stores not wearing masks until you walk in. And I've been in a few stores where nobody's wearing masks, including the employees. So it's far from perfect. Yep, yep, totally. And another second experience I had, which was great timing for this to happen during uh, quarantine, since I've, I've been living in this apartment for years, and we had water intrusion in one of our rooms. What does water intrusion mean? That sounds like you were attacked. <laughs> we were by the what we were accosted by the water. No, it was a um, water intrusion. Just generally would mean if you experience some type of flooding in your basement, like if you own a single family home and you have flooding occur in your basement when it rains, that would be water intrusion. But it could also happen too from like an internal leak, right? Like a pipe mm, burst okay. or something. Our case was that we experienced a lot of rain in my neighborhood in a short period of time, something like over an inch in an hour. And the past few years, this type of occurrence, this type of uh, rain activity has become more common. And it's something the city has even mentioned, like our our rain drainage system sometimes cannot handle how much water comes through it in such a short period of time. And what happened was that when this rain hit, the rainwater, they couldn't, couldn't dissipate quick enough and then so it backed up and overflowed into the basement of the apartment building where, and that happens to be, I'm on the basement floor and it's like divided in half, sort of like where my apartment is one half of the basement and it's like finished and sealed off. And the other side is like an unfinished part of the, of the building basement building. And it has two, um, 
uh, storm drain, like storm drain entrances, where if you run water through that, it's running into the storm drain. And that overflow, it backed up. And we woke up the morning, the next morning and realized that thankfully it was only our furthest room, which was one that we don't use for anything important. It's just like storage and stuff um, of, of non, like non-essential things, not important things. And we found that the carpet was damp, like really wet and damp. And we're like, what in the heck? And like, just figured out, it's like, oh, it must've came from the strain, called our landlord or landlord came out and looked at it. He contacted the city, the city sent out, um, some, a remediation company who they ripped up the carpet in that room. And they like also sprayed down the floors and like set up dehumidifiers and all this stuff and fans wow this is quite the ordeal it was and it was all during quarantine so it's like six people coming into my apartment and into one part of my apartment who i don't know anything about and i'm like i'm wearing a mask the whole time landlord told all of them to wear masks which means that some of them weren't wearing masks when they showed up to the premises which means that they probably weren't married they're not being very consistent their mask adherence so anyways yes it was a huge ordeal they spray they but they got everything done fairly quickly, which I appreciated. And now we just have this room of, it was actually kind of annoyance because we um, kept, we tripped a fuse a couple times because they've hooked up into this one part of the, our apartment, mm. um, like five heavy pieces of heavy equipment. One's like this yeah. massive dehumidifier, some industrial fans and an air purifier and so they're like sucking a ton of electricity. And um, so now we have extension cables running through parts of our house so that we can like draw power from a different circuit to, <laughs> to run different appliances. So it's kind of a bit of a mess. So that's going to be around for a couple of days. And then they're going to come back and collect all their equipment. And then a carpet. Wait, so how long ago did this happen? It happened on Thursday evening. And we've discovered okay. it Friday morning. So it's happened. The remediation happened quickly. They came out Saturday. Yeah, that's good. Which I definitely appreciated, but um, yeah. When you said, "Yeah, I didn't know they were still here until you just said that," and then I was concerned that this had happened like two weeks ago. Oh no, you were no. just living with this for weeks. <laughs> no, no, it should only be uh, like another day, I, I think. So, like, probably on Monday they're gonna come collect all their all their equipment, and then we will have a different set of people come through to get carpet put in, um, which the landlord is is arranging and everything. So. Everything's it's been kind of nice. Yeah. New carpet. New carpet in one room. But so, yeah. But yeah. So it was def- very unpleasant. We also have a small storage unit that's in the basement and some of our things in there got wet. So we just had to like go through and I had to throw out some stuff and throw away boxes that were totally ruined and whatever. Thankfully, the water didn't get very high. It was only like a quarter of an inch enough to still damage some things um, that were in a, in a cardboard box. But everything that was in there was not not essential. wasn't important stuff. So, um, anyways, that has been my quarantine. Is like just a lot. You know, life goes on. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and you just kind of get a little concerned. Where you're like, please, everyone, wear your masks. But also, I'm not conversational, so I'm not gonna. I mean, I I would say put on your mask, but uh, it's also it's very awkward, right? Yeah. Oh man, the yeah the worst experience I had was when i was moving out of my last place my last landlord wanted to show the place and it, you know honestly i was like that is reasonable so give us a heads up and we'll get out of here or at least 
go up into one of the upstairs rooms kind of out of the way so we'll only have contact with them for like 10 seconds when they walk in and we did say make sure everybody wears masks and the one group of people he brought in there was three girls and one of their mothers so four people walking around the house and none of them had masks on and i was just oh i was so mad he didn't show the place to anybody else after that so we did not make an issue out of it but it was like this is at some point it's like just total negligence on the part of the person in charge because you well i mean i do somewhat hold it against the dumb people who are like walking through apartments without masks but really the person in the position of power there is the one with the responsibility i think yeah no i get that totally and thankfully my landlord has been very consistent and has anytime we've had any maintenance or service staff like come through the building that he is clear to them that they need to be wearing masks and they adhere to it it's just that the fact that he has to ask the question or make the case like he said he states you need to be wearing a mask tells me that people aren't wearing their masks that is probably true that is very different in chicago has been my experience a lot of the people who are going into many different buildings are wearing masks almost all of them I mean, I guess I don't have a huge amount of exposure to that, but it seems that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think some of these employees were wearing masks, but my experience was like, I was waiting for them to arrive. And when they did arrive, they came through the front door and I could only see my landlord and one of them. And then he like said to all of them, which I, like I said, I can't see, couldn't see all of them. He said, you need to put on a mask. So some of the people approaching the building were not wearing masks when they were yeah. showing up, which is a... Uh, uh, frustrating any but yeah i don't it leaves you in a precarious position right because you're like i need this stuff done i can't just leave this damaged yeah carpet and wet floor in my apartment so yeah anyways well, it's, it's kind of an interesting segue into this more general idea of what stuff can wait and what stuff just needs to happen in life right now mm-hmm. because yeah it's like everybody has different things that are important to them like um well i don't know i got a, a new oven And my landlord has been in to fix a couple small things in the apartment. And my judgment there was like, well, you know, like I need an oven. And also, uh, if it's just my landlord over and over, he always wears a mask and it's the same person. So I feel not too worried about that kind of thing. Um, But on the other hand, I was like, well, you know, like one place where I can avoid is haircuts. And now I've just dedicated myself. I've decided I'm going to get good at cutting my own hair. Mm -hmm. I'm still pretty bad at it, but I just did haircut number four a week ago. Uh, marginally better than haircut number three, still quite bad. But I was like, at this point, with four haircuts under my belt, you know, maybe maybe I should change careers. Oh, yeah. Maybe this is what I should do. Yeah, perhaps. I'm, I'm not sure. I cut my hair once during quarantine because when it was really bad, when lockdown first was uh, initiated, I need a haircut. And I was like, I'll just, I'm not going to be seeing anybody and only through video call. So I'll just cut my own hair. So I did that. And it was okay. It was okay. I did like the same level of guard just all over my head. So it was just like a simple buzz cut. So it wasn't too mm-hmm. too difficult. It wasn't too difficult. Uh, but I definitely prefer my hair to be a bit more styled with like a, a somewhat of a fade. Yeah, um, the fade is hard. That's what I've been working on. Oh, yeah. yeah. And doing it on yourself is even harder because it's hard to would be hard to fade the back of your head and even the sides too. What I have found most challenging, any women listening to this will probably not get this, but for men, you probably have an understanding of like how the back of your hair is faded, but it's not just shorter at the bottom than at the top. 
It's also trimmed inward, like mm-hmm. the wings are trimmed off, and that is basically impossible to do yourself. Like I can't even imagine a way in which you could do it yourself. So mine has always been really bad, and a couple times I've had a friend help me with it. But that part, yeah, I don't I don't know how you would ever get good enough to cut that because you need a pretty you can't do it by feel. You pretty much need to see it. And to get it symmetrical, I don't think your hand would reach in such a way that you could cut two symmetrical lines. So it, it really is probably necessary to have somebody else for that. Yeah. Unless you just grow a mullet, which, you know, is not <laughs> off the table. Awful. Just awful. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you bring up a good point. Like the tapering occurs there and then also there is uh, just the general cleaning of the neck, of the hairline on your neck. Yeah, like, also difficult. Very difficult, especially you want it cl- nice and clean and straight, but it can be hard to judge how far up the hairline do I go? Because you don't just start where you get where hair starts to grow. Like You clean all that up and you create a nice even line like where it makes sense. Yeah. Um, no, it's funny though because you say you want a nice straight line, but it's interestingly, so I did some research here because I, I asked my girlfriend to trim up the back mm-hmm. and I was showing her pictures. And well, this is where... I learned that a lot of people don't really think what is the hairline like. And she was like, oh, I'm, I never really thought about how the back of men's haircuts are. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, so it depends. Sometimes you do get a straight across, but there's also the like more natural look where it's it's faded more gradually. And there it tends to be rounded. So I guess it would be convex. So longer in the middle, very slightly. Um, and I realize that's what I'm accustomed to having because I've seen it in the mirror. But doing it that way must be even harder. I was like, we're just gonna, we're gonna give up on that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I I didn't know either. I don't even know what I get. I presume straight across. I should look now because, like I said, I have a fresh haircut. Yeah, uh, I'm not gonna. Do Maybe it I'll again try to myself. add that to show notes. Pictures of men's haircuts from the back. There you go. Yeah, we need examples here. I <laughs> I need to be educated as well. I'm unaware. But yeah, whenever I used to cut my hair years ago, and I always just did straight buzz cut, really short, and I was just kept it simple. Cutting my hair in any stylized way is way too much of a challenge. If I'm cutting my hair, it's going to be a two guard all the way around. Like, it's just going to be simple. But then your hair looks really bad if no, you it let does, it grow. Yeah. Like, the first few weeks, it's fine. You're like, okay, you just have a simple it's buzz like the, cut. What are those things called? Those plants? Like a chia plant? A chia pet. Or chia, chia pet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. your hair turns into a chia pet. Yeah, because yeah, it all grows at the same length. And so pretty quickly, it'll look poor. It just looks really bad because hair, I guess just to me, my I, the way I like my hair styled, it needs to be cleaner and tighter on the sides and, uh, yeah. than it is on the top. But it's all growing at the same length. And actually, my hair grows a little faster on the sides than it does on top. So it just looks really bad. Yeah. No, I think that's just like the modern style of uh, professional and semi-professional cuts for men. They're all longer on the top. It's just, I don't know if it's always been that way. But certainly now, that's sort of the expectation, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it just, I think it looks nice. I like it. So, yeah. Well, that's enough about haircuts. Let's move on to something yeah. more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, the other the other item of follow up we had was about arm. So after our conversation a couple of weeks ago on arm, I uh, well, for one thing, arm was just in the news because of the Apple transition. But I did a lot of research anyway about it, and I learned quite a few things. So I didn't put all these things in the show notes, which maybe I should have, um, because now I will regret it when I forget to say something important. But we looked up arm holdings i think so arm is like a company owned by another company 
and that other company is owned by SoftBank, which is the same primary investor in Uber and what else does SoftBank own? Maybe maybe I'll Google that. But they're like a giant venture capitalist firm. They're actually heavily funded by Saudi Arabia's government, and they're run by I think his name is Masayoshi San. Um, and basically, their whole strategy is to own things where they can subsidize the cost for a while and then uh, charge customers less, basically lose money marginally until they own enough market share that they can jack up prices. So that is the Uber strategy, which probably everybody who's ridden Uber kind of realizes Uber does not really make money from their rides. I think maybe now they do, but for a long time they didn't. And they heavily subsidize it with promotions. But the long-term idea of a business like that is that you want to capture the market and then once you have it, you can raise prices and make way more money. Monopoly profits, it's called. So interestingly, I didn't know this until a couple weeks ago, but SoftBank also owns Arm, and or rather the company that owns Arm, but it's just some kind of weird corporate structure. Um, and allegedly, they are looking to sell. It's come out in some rumors recently. And people have been speculating who might buy. So it probably wouldn't be one of the really big tech firms because of um antitrust issues but people have speculated uh people like nvidia so nvidia makes uh, graphical processing units gpus and combining that with a business like arm that designs instruction sets you could imagine having some synergies i guess but i don't really know a lot about the details but anyway yeah hopefully that clears up some questions about arm and also apple was involved early on in arm for the newton so if you've heard of the newton it was basically like apple's idea at a tablet slash palm pilot way before tablets and palm pilots i think it was in 98 and so apple agreed now i'm I'm not going to know the details exactly on this but apple either got involved in a joint venture or heavily funded arm in its really early days specifically because they thought it could be useful for the newton and the newton flopped but that uh, influx of cash and notoriety from Apple basically propelled ARM forward into a real company. Uh, and so Apple still has some deal with ARM that makes it, I don't know if they pay very little or they pay nothing for the licensing of the ARM instruction set. But that is the long-running relationship between ARM and Apple. And also, we neglected to say what ARM stands for. Uh, it, it is now called Advanced Risk Machines. Originally, it was Acorn Risk Machines. Probably worth taking that apart. So machine, obvious. It's like a computer machine. Um, risk is a reduced instruction set. I don't know what this is. Reduced instruction set something. Which is in contrast to a CISC, a complex instruction set. So Intel's x86 instruction set, the the competing standard, is a complex instruction set, meaning it has lots of instructions. Um, RISC, reduced instruction sets, are simpler, and that's basically that's like the key difference in the architecture. There's fewer instructions, so you have to find ways to do things with your more limited options. And then the A it was originally Acorn for the company that created it, but has been renamed uh, Advanced. So now it is an advanced RISC machine. Anyway, so I end my diatribe on ARM. No, all very interesting. I was unaware of all of that. I guess we'll have to see where this license lands. 
that's got to be one of the biggest potential factors, I guess, about the future of ARM. Do you think that will have, like, wherever this license ends up going is going to play a role in, like, who, what the, who the future belongs to between these competing standards? Or is it still just not, it's not very relevant? Do you mean who owns ARM? Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think it'll matter. Yeah, I said license. I meant the the IP, like who owns ARM, the technology. Well, one interesting thing that I learned about this is that ARM is not really worth very much as companies go. I don't know exactly why, but something something about the nature of being just an instruction set designer means that it has not made a lot of money and it is not expected to. It's not really worth very much. Um. So I don't know, like, I don't know how much ownership will make a difference to the future of ARM. It does seem like, I know we talked about this last time, but it does seem like ARM has the upper hand going forward, but I don't know how much that will help ARM the company. That's so interesting. That's something that is a valuable piece of technology is not worth very much. You don't see that very often. Yeah. Yeah, it is very odd. And I do wonder, this is where I should just do some more research. I wonder if the fact that they're selling at a low price or for free to apple is the reason for that because you know you could drive a hard bargain with apple i would think right and but i'm not sure why apple's relationship with the with arm should matter when it comes to something like samsung or another phone manufacturer who's licensing it yeah that's a good question i don't know it is, I, I also wrote down this, another thing that I didn't research deeply, but um, there is an open source instruction set. So we talked briefly last time about whether ARM is open source and it is not, but there is an open source instruction set and it's called RISC-V. RISC is the same reduced instruction set we talked about earlier and five is, I believe it's the fifth iteration. I think the other ones weren't open source though, but I actually got to see uh a person speak at a conference about this i was at a distributed computing conference and one of the guests there was from uc berkeley and this was his project maybe he and a couple other collaborators but he was one of the main people on this project uh and he was pitching the value of having this open source architecture now i don't know if this will get picked up in in like serious computer manufacturing but I have to think that the existence of an alternative like that probably drives down the value of ARM. Because if ARM were to ever really increase their prices, people have an alternative. Or so my thinking is. I, I don't know enough about this, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, if it's comparable, if the products are homogenous, then yes, agreed. I mean, then it drives the price to zero, right? There's no way. Yeah, if they're truly interchangeable, mm-hmm. yeah. I think there's pretty pretty big barriers to entry and exit, but you know uh, the fact that there is some price at which people would switch is relevant. It's also important that this other instruction set is also risk, because from what I understand, the big thing about ARM is that it's risk. Like we talk about ARM versus Intel, but really the battle is risk versus CISC. Mm-hmm. Do you want the simple instruction sets where you have to compile all your code down to just a series of very simple commands? Or do you want the complex ones where lots of different commands already exist in the, the architecture? But then there, there are even other things that I learned. So the size of transistors on a chip is measured in nanometers. And Intel is way behind on creating, like doing the physical chemistry required to create chips that have a certain number of transistors. They're only able to create transistors 
in what I think is the 10 nanometer range, but they've been trying to get to seven for a while and they just delayed again this week. They announced that it's going to be pushed back again. And I think over the last five years, they've had like three three times they've announced a year delay so they like did meet a benchmark at some point in there but then they started more delays for the next generation and meanwhile the people who create arm chips which is mainly taiwan semiconductor are just crushing it and they're like a generation and a half ahead of intel at this point so the combination of risk versus CISC and risk seeming to win but also that taiwan semiconductor is just a lot better at fabricating these than intel is is altogether seeming to slowly sink intel mm. Mm, interesting well time will tell yeah i guess so well also in just like geopolitical news well taiwan semiconductor announced that they will be building a fab which is like a fabrication factory in i think arizona somewhere in the u.s which is a big deal because right now i think they make all the chips in taiwan um but Basically, the the people I read seem to think that this is like a U.S. government push to get them producing things in the U.S. because it's a it's a huge security risk that a lot slash almost all of our most important chips are being made right off the mainland of China. Uh, And so Intel is no longer trustworthy as like the only fab in the U.S. and we need to get Taiwan Semiconductor here. And also something I didn't know is that China is catching up in a lot of technology areas, but one thing they have not caught up on is uh, chip manufacturing. So apparently that's actually a huge geopolitical advantage. So yeah, that we will also see where that goes. Yeah, I went down a lot of rabbit holes on this. I'm not coming back with a lot of concrete information, more like high level stuff that I came away with, but it was really interesting. No, it sounds really interesting. And yeah, it's something, it's sort of like a hidden somewhat hidden uh, world of, of technology uh, from where we sit, or at least where I sit, we, I don't think about processing chip technology very often, just not something that yeah. I encounter, but clearly that's well, one, it's incredibly important. And two, there's a lot of like different tangential, like related topics associated with this. Who owns licensing open source versus closed source manufacturing geopolitical elements to it it's all really interesting one day there'll be a doc right a documentary about this like yeah no i would watch that immediately (laughs) yeah i think i don't know if i mentioned in the last podcast but i've been reading this book called innovators and it is about the history of computing told from individual well innovators throughout the history of it so it starts with um ada lovelace and charles babbage who invented something called the analytical uh, the analytical engine, I think it was called, which was a purely mechanical computer, but could be considered the first computer. And then it goes all the way through people doing like vacuum tubes and finally figuring out how to do complicated math in World War II and then creating commercial computers. And then the founding of Intel is about where I am now. And actually reading that book at the same time as all this ARM stuff happening has added a lot of color because I have a lot more understanding of like, what is it to build chips? Like, why is this such a big industry? And it turns out that these really you know we imagine manufacturing at least i imagine manufacturing is mostly a bunch of like people building stuff on a on a factory line and maybe robotic arms moving things around like if you think of the production of cars there's a lot of like lifting up the frame to drop it over the other pieces i have no idea how cars work (laughs) um but what's so different about chip manufacturing is it is mostly a chemical process you actually have these these pieces of silicon 
And then you're working at such incredibly small scales, like the nanometer. So it's, you know, millions of transistors in a tiny little space that actually what you do is you catalyze the silicon. They call it doping the silicon um, with certain chemicals and I think light. And by doing that, you, you make some of the silicon more conductive than other parts. And that's basically how you create working chips. So it is, it is wildly interesting. And it also explains some of the economics of it because these, these fabs, these fabrication factories cost in the tens of billions to make, but then each individual chip is extremely cheap. And so every generation, Intel and Taiwan Semiconductor build one or two new fabs and then they use them the entire time. They don't build any more because they're so crazy expensive to build. The idea is you build it once and you amortize the cost of that factory over the entire generation of the chips. And it's also why chip pricing is kind of wacky because the marginal cost of them is almost nothing. Interesting. But you have high startup cost. Yeah. Sorry. I I went way too deep on this, <laughs> but it, it was so interesting. Okay. So... <laughs> that's follow up thank you thank you ethan for the 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 brief lecture overview introduction to arm technologies wasn't brief but <laughs> yes so what do we want to talk about next here how about you tell us why we're a real podcast now okay so we're a real podcast now because i finally have i wouldn't i can't say professional podcasting equipment but some podcasting <laughs> equipment <laughs> yeah i have an i have a mic arm now and i have this pop filter in front of me the mic is much closer to my I hope the audio for this episode sounds better and I sound clear. Sounds better to me. Well, great. So yeah, I went out, I finally went ahead and purchased a mic arm off of Amazon and also a shock mount because this is connected to my desk and I often bump my desk. So now my microphone shouldn't be picking up on when I accidentally do that. But yeah, so Ethan, Ethan has always said either a thousand listeners or podcasting equipment. And this, this turned out to be a lot easier. So took the easy road. Uh, I might have to ask you about that shock mount. Yeah. So I, I also have a mic arm. And so Greg and I now have the same mic arm, I think. Yeah. And the same mic. Mm-hmm. We have different pop filters and he has a shock mount. So we're going to have to listen back to this episode and see whose setup performs better. Yeah. Yeah. There are other factors, right? I have like 30,000 fans running in just the other room, <laughs> but I don't. I hopefully it's not picking up that I didn't think it was, but, but yeah, the the mic arm is okay. It's like the standard one that you um see when you go to Amazon and you type in uh mic arm. I think it's like twenty or twenty five dollars, and it suffices. It's not a great experience. Exactly but how it, I feel. It works. It works. The shock mount, on the other hand, is actually really uh, nice, but it costs the same amount as the arm itself. So yeah. I shouldn't be surprised that the quality of it is is a little higher, but I have noticed that when I bump the arm or bump my desk, the microphone, instead of the vibrations running through and into the microphone, my microphone just does this like kind of sways back and forth or bounces up and down. The shock mount is picking like distributing yeah. that and, and not letting it get into the mic, which is pretty great. Pretty cool. So legit. Yeah. No, I need that. I actually bump my desk a lot, which listeners probably know all too well. Yeah. No, I'm I'm a huge culprit of that. I just can't help. My chair swivels a little bit. And sometimes when we've been sitting here for a while, I'll just be like swiveling. And then there's a small desk or drawer connected to the desk and my knee will just go bam right into that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know that too. Well, anyway, no need to congratulate us listeners, but we have entered big time. Yes. Two mic arms and two mics. <laughs> 
So speaking of equipment, let let me finally talk about this new email app I found for my iPad. So I I have been searching for years, decades, millennia. I, for my, my entire existence, I've been searching for a good email app for <laughs> iOS. Um, so I, I bounced around. For a while, I used Gmail. And, and Gmail is like almost the opposite of the way this mic arm is uh, suffice, the way it suffices. Gmail is the opposite of sufficing. It like irks you in some really fundamental ways, but at the same time adds some luxuries that you you really appreciate. Like the Gmail algorithm for which mail alerts you. I don't know if you've ever used it, but you can make Gmail only alert you for some things. And its guesses are top-notch. They're so good. But there's just... I'm not even sure I could totally put my finger on it. There's just some things I don't love about Gmail. And I also try to stay away from Gmail as a product as far as I can. Like, I just kind of rather use third-party stuff than more Google things. But I had, I'd actually have to think. There were some concrete reasons why I moved off of Gmail. But I, I moved off of Gmail maybe a year ago and switched mostly to Apple Mail. And Apple Mail is just... It is so not good that it is really hard to put your finger on all the not good things. But the one that really broke me was one day I wanted to put a link in an email. I wanted to say, hey, Greg, click here for a website. And it turns out that on iOS, that is literally impossible. You can say, click HTTPS www.mywebsite.com, but you can't put in a link that has a word linking to a website you know you have to just put the url in there wow and i was like that is the end of it apple mail you're so it's so underpowered it's it's like impossible to put attachments on things oh gmail that was the thing that broke me on gmail gmail is even harder to put attachments on things from your phone Mm. and i was like i just you know like especially when working on my ipad this is a full computer that has files and i want to link things you know let me use it like a computer i know how to use computers and I I just had it. So it happened to coincide with another one, another podcast I listened to called Mac Power Users, reviewing various email apps available on iOS and Mac OS. And they hit a couple. And then there was one and I just heard it. And I was like, that is the one that I want. And they listed specifically how good the attachments were and how well you can format text, how it manages your inbox for you. And I was like, sold immediately. It's called Spark. I have never looked back. It has a couple small bugs. I have found that occasionally the syncing is a little behind or the Apple crash maybe like once every two weeks. But frankly, that doesn't bother me that much. And it is such a massive improvement. Quality of my life has improved dramatically. So here I am with a new email app and I would recommend it to anybody interested. That's so interesting that you landed on Spark. So I went out a few weeks ago looking for an email app as well. I don't use email in my personal life a ton, but I have never been satisfied with any email client that I've used. And circling back to the Mail.app, I do not understand this. I don't understand this. I just can't wrap my head around how something like like a, an application like email from Apple is so, so poor. It feels like the consensus out there in the in among those looking for email apps is that don't even bother touching it. Some people are sort of locked into it because they've been using it for a long time, or perhaps they do just prefer it for whatever reason. But that is few and far between. It's mostly everyone says, this app is criminally underpowered. 
Yeah, underpowered is exactly the word. Yeah, and it's very dated. Like, it looks dated, it feels mm-hmm. dated, it's missing features. Things that other email apps have had for a very long time never make it into to the mail application. Is it just that Apple doesn't doesn't care or they're not really interested in maintaining these types of applications i have no idea it's so frustrating because i do feel like it's the most stable email app i've used on ios by a long shot but it's yeah it just is bad (laughs) you just use it and it feels old and underpowered when i think of apple i do not think resource constrained i don't think oh they don't they just don't have the manpower or the resources available to them to work on all these different things simultaneously like there should be, and there probably is a team within Apple that all they do is work on mail. I would suspect. I wonder. I wonder if it's like one person. That's ridiculous. I have sometimes wondered so, that. I know. I it makes you wonder when you use the app. What's happening here behind the scenes? Yeah, I don't actually know how many developers Apple has. I bet it's a lot fewer than one might expect. That's remarkable to me. So an example. This is a tangent, but it's something that crossed my mind just the other day. So. I was thinking about potentially recording, needing to record a phone conversation, and I have an iPhone. So I thought, okay, there must be a way to do this, right? No, like no, no. I own an I own an iPhone 11. This is the newest cutting cutting edge technology. And Ethan says it perfectly. No, no, no. There is no way to do this easily on iOS. Apple puts a lot of protections in place for the phone app for good reason. I understand why you would want to protect this app and not allow third-party apps to just link into your phone application. However, they provide no supplement to this problem. Does Apple not think that there are people whose job may necessitate that they need to record a phone conversation? If you're going to lock down the phone app so I can't record conversations, provide another app that does it for me. Okay? That is how you complete the circle here. Like This is how you provide a, a, a useful service to your consumers, Apple, is you're like, okay, for for good reasons, for good security reasons, we're not going to let any other application tie into the phone. But don't worry, we also are providing phone.record or whatever. And it comes built into iOS, and if you need to use it, it's available. Is that so hard? I don't understand. I knew of this issue because I follow a couple people who try to do basically their whole life on iPads just as a challenge. I don't really understand the desire. I mean, I get it in small doses, but they want to record podcasts on iOS. And the the setups they have come up with require like $500 of additional equipment because they have to route the audio twice, basically. Because I guess iOS is just set up in a way that if you are on a call, and that includes like third-party call clients like Skype or Microsoft Teams, if you're on one of those, you cannot also funnel the audio to something else, like a recording process. Which is like, you know, you could not record a podcast that way. So it's very frustrating. And I actually would kind of like to do a podcast on an iPad. I think it would be interesting. but does not seem like something that i will be doing yeah and there are some workarounds for recording a phone call if you want to but they're all are hacky and just really weird and yeah it doesn't just come with batteries included is the Mm. frustrating part so that just leads me off a tangent whenever i start to think about these apple native apps ios native apps that they feel incomplete in a lot of ways they feel underdeveloped and incomplete and missing features and it's really frustrating so but tell me more about spark what makes it so great i so when i went searching for an email client i came across spark and i thought it looked really interesting and useful 
but I haven't actually used it. And then the other one that I came across as a potential was Thunderbird, which is open mm. source email client. But I guess tell me more about your use of Spark and, and why it's so great. Well, I, I've pulled it up now so I can have some guidance as I look through it. I will lead off by saying one thing I don't like about it is that it comes with a built-in calendar. And in fact, this is what drove me from Outlook because my my email and my calendar are just two things. Like, obviously, they're related, but so are, like, my notes and my text messages. You know, I don't want these things randomly combined into apps in, in arbitrary pairs. Um, so I just don't use the calendar. But that thing does kind of bug me. Sometimes it suggests stuff. But what I'll say first about the good things is it divides your email into unseen and seen. And those are actually separated in your inbox. Initially, I didn't love this, but mostly it was just an adjustment. And now I like it a lot because in the past, I would scan my inbox for like, where are the blue dots, which messages are bold, depending on the client you use, and click on those and then they become unbold. But now once you click on something, it drops out of the first box and into the second from your unseen into your scene. And I've actually come to really like that. The scene is sort of like a cue of things I need to do. And the unseen is a cue of things I need to see. From there, it allows you to add multiple different email accounts. And this is a key, key addition. All the different email accounts can be assigned colors. And your messages have that color. So I look in my main inbox. And next to every message is a small line of color indicating which email address it came in from. So I have my like spam email address that I use for signing up for stuff. I have my old Notre Dame email that I have used for a lot of newsletter signups. I have my professional email that I use if I'm like teaching workshops or something. And being able to scan my whole inbox and see those colors is extremely helpful. Another thing that's nice is I use folders a lot. And specifically, I have some Gmail rules on the back end to send different emails into folders automatically. So when I get newsletters, I route all of the email addresses they come from into a specific folder called newsletters. And in Spark, you can actually set up custom, I, I don't know what you would call them. You know, in an email client, usually there's a list of like sent, drafts, archive, mm-hmm. trash. You can add things to that list. And those things can be folders. So I have an additional thing at the bottom of that list called newsletters, which is just a link straight into my newsletters folder. In Gmail, I would have to dig through. And I have literally like, uh, oh, I don't know, probably 100 folders or something. And I'd have to scroll through all of them to get to the one I want. And then another thing, and this was another thing that drove me from Gmail, I'm now remembering, is when you put something in a folder in Gmail, you have to scroll through all the folders. In Spark, and this is true in Outlook as well, you can just type in the name of the folder and it'll find it and you can click on it. And for some reason, Gmail has not implemented this and neither has Apple Mail. And it is, for a person who uses folders, it's basically a deal breaker. You know, you spend like 10 seconds just finding which folder to go to because you're scrolling through a list of 100. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think I think that about rounds out the stuff that I like about it, which is most things about it. it has really good search too, but at this point that's kind of standard. It sounds really compelling. It looks really good. Their website looks great. Question I do have, uh, tangent question, not a follow up to any of the things you've listed here, is when you're on on your work computer and you're using a third party app. I'm assuming you're routing your work email through this as well. I'm not. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. I should actually talk about that very briefly. I want my work email in a different place than my personal email. And I feel very strongly about that. In fact, that is the reason I didn't move everything to Outlook because I can't believe I'm saying this. I think Outlook is the best of the other clients by a pretty wide margin. Yeah, I was going to put everything in Outlook, but I just couldn't get over the fact that 
I want I want the dots on iOS when it shows me how many new emails I have. I want that to be indicative of like that's work and that's not work because mm-hmm. otherwise it doesn't give me sufficient information. Gotcha. It makes a lot of sense to me to have divisions between applications so that it's clear this is my personal stuff, this is my work stuff. It's not getting intermixed together. But I guess that makes me wonder how do you handle Fantastical? Your Fantastical is tied into your work calendar, no? It's tied into both. So my personal calendar is all through Gmail. So I link Fantastical to Gmail, but then I separately link it to the back end of my Outlook calendar. Right. And you can like switch views in Fantastical. Mm-hmm. So it's like only my work calendar, only my personal calendar. So do you have Fantastical on your work computer? Yes. Okay. And I have them both linked there also. Gotcha. Yeah. But my default view is always personal. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. That's what I was wondering is like, as you start to use these third-party apps... And they are tied into your work life somehow. Do you bring them over to your work computer and use them mm. there? Or do you use the default clients that you're provided? Yeah, my rule with my work computer is never log into iCloud. Like, I don't want it to be seriously synced to my life. But for the third-party applications, I do install those usually. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Oh, and one, one last pro tip that you reminded me of. We spoke about that separation between work alerts and personal life alerts. But one thing that worked great for me was I also used to teach at the University of Cincinnati. And I would add my University of Cincinnati email to Outlook along with my work email. And then any message that I got in there popped up as an alert, but it was always work. And I always felt like I needed to do it. So they all had a level of importance. And Outlook was just like important stuff you need to do. And... Well, at the time, I think I was using Apple Mail. That was everything else. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So do you use any of these service extension services that you can tie into with your Spark? So this is a trend I've noticed with a lot of third-party apps now is that... So another example, an example of a new third-party app that that I've been experimenting with is Notion. Mm. And it has the same feature where it's like, we tie into all of your services... So we can tie into your Trello board, we can tie into your uh, Todoist, we can tie into OmniFocus or any other application, and they're often very extensive. You'll go and look and there'll be like 50 services that they can tie into. And I haven't yet understood what the point of this is, of this type of, of integration. I agree. 100% agree. Yes. Okay. Okay, so I'm not the only one who's like, I've t- tried it. I've like, okay, same. let me try connecting all these things. There must be some use. And then it doesn't feel useful at all. It just feels like this weird tacked on. That, yeah, that's the thing. It's tacked on. It feels very non-native. Mm-hmm. Like if these, if from the, ba- the ground up, these things had been built to integrate, maybe they would make sense. But I constantly find that the way they integrate is completely useless. Yes. Like it'll show my to-do's, to-dos, but in this weird tacked on way where it's like, this view is much worse than if I just yes. opened the Todoist <laughs> app. <which> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, because Fantastical does that with Todoist and I have yes. integrated it because I can hide it easily, but I haven't found any good use for it. No. I Yeah, I always think that maybe, and I do once in a great while, I will switch to show only my Todoist to-dos. And that way I can see like, what day do I have a lot of stuff to do? But that's it. That's like the only use I have found for it. Right. Yeah. And it's it's way worse than viewing it in Todoist where things are listed in a list. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see them on a calendar because most of these things, well, they're just, yeah, they're not time blocks. They're just due dates. No, no. So, 
Okay. What Todoist also integrates with emails, and that one does seem potentially useful, where you can forward an email to a special address and and it gets added as a to-do item. But I've just realized that I'm too particular about naming, and I don't want the email's subject line to become the to-do item. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not... To me, that's not good enough. I need to enter it myself. If there were... I don't know if it even could be intelligent enough to add it automatically, but that that's what I want. Yeah, and I find again there's just it's not a native experience. Even when you have a tie-in like that, with say you're using an email to, and I can see that being useful sometimes, but it's not that hard to open the Todoist app on my phone to add the to do, mm-hmm. and then you have yeah. all the native, all your tags, any like additional notes you might want to add the to the to do or a date setting an importance level like there's all these all this like metadata you can add to your to-do that's feels very natural like you can do it very effortlessly from the app Mm -hmm. but with a like a tied in service or with i don't know how this email feature works but it feels like it's going to be it's going to feel very awkward to try to do these things or it's going to be an incomplete to-do which then i have to add to i have to add a to-do to finish filling out the to-do that i emailed myself or it's like a cognitive load where it's like don't forget you emailed yourself this to do, but it's missing some critical metadata that you need to add. Mm. That just seems really like that's not, that's poor. That's not going to work. Yes. You know, which one integration though, I would really like, and I've been thinking about this recently. I want a way to connect GitHub to Todoist. And I want it in an extremely specific way. GitHub allows you to make Kanban boards for an individual repository, and I want to make those Kanban boards into projects in Todoist and to show all the tasks left to be done. Mm-hmm. That would be so helpful yeah. because in that case, all the naming would make total sense. They're just like tickets. Yep. And you could check them off as you go, and then I could run it from Todoist instead of running it from GitHub. Yep. That is on my list. I would definitely experiment with that feature if they tied in that service. Something I will else I'll say is that I have begun to use GitHub more as a project management tool as well as a rep- code repository and version control system. And it's, it is really good. GitHub has done a really good job of building out nice features to allow people to collaborate together, to create, as you say, like issues that become cam- con- Kanban boards that you can move. You can see the tickets flowing across. Yeah. And I think ag- I totally agree because I have always I've felt this before in my own projects of like recording information in my to doist about a, a code base or a project that I'm working on. And then the code base itself being completely separated mm. and having this weird just tension where I'm like, I want this integrated. I want this all brought under one place. So it's clear to me exactly how the tickets tie into the code. And it's not it's not unusable. It still works decently the way that like my work like the system I have now. But as I've used more and more of GitHub's native features, the more and more I'm like, this really works well. And I want either to when I have a project like this, a code uh, I'm working on a code base, to just use GitHub completely for it and like not have to do this involved at all. Or have a tie-in between the two, like you describe. What do you? What are your thoughts? My thoughts are: I am writing this down as a note to myself because I I have a project that I call Autodoist, like Autodoist, that I've been working on just to like automate random little things about Todoist, and I wonder how feasible this would actually be to build. It sounds really fun and something that I will lose countless hours on and actually never finish, but one can dream. 
that is like the that is my go-to move <laughs> what yeah. you've just described is like no this sounds like a lot of fun will i ever finish it probably not i don't think so <laughs> but i'm gonna do it anyways <laughs> uh, yeah i would like to try this so we'll see i'll write this down at least do some research because yeah i have searched for this and i don't think it exists anywhere i wouldn't be surprised if todoist has plans for this type of integration in the future mm-hmm. one can hope so maybe we'll do a little searching to see if they've put a blog post out of like because they do that occasionally They'll say, look, we have this really, like, they have they have Kanban boards coming. It might already be here. I remember seeing a blog post a couple months ago of, hey, we have created we have created a way to alter the view of your uh, projects in Todoist from the traditional, like, list view of to-do tasks to a Kanban board. And it was an experimental feature at the time. I don't know if it's hit actually come to production yet, but uh, it's on the way, basically. So as I, I see them experimenting in ways like they've added the like they've incorporated date information in a more explicit way. I don't know if you saw this, but like you have a no, actually if you're on the Todoist application, there's like a I can't remember what they call it, upcoming view and you can see the next seven days oh, of your yeah, tasks. That's really good. And that is very it's actually good. it goes on and on. It's not just seven. Oh. If you scroll down, it just goes forever. Yeah, I really like upcoming view. That's really nice. And this all is a part of Todoist. Now it's like this becoming the Todoist ad. Todoist, if you want to give us any money, you know, you know how to reach us. <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> Feel free, please. <laughs> we already pay for subscriptions, so at least we could get those for free. Right, exactly. No, so they had a a refactoring of their code base, and they, like, re-released under a new version. It was, like, I can't remember what they call it, like, Foundations. Foundations. Yeah. yeah. And when they did that, they changed a lot of things, all for the better, in my opinion. Like, a lot of, a lot of little annoyances with Todoist went away when they did that. But so now I've been living with the foundations for a while and I'm sort of like, what's next? Like, what's coming? I know that they've revamped, like they've refactored everything so that they can build from the foundation up a better service. So now I'm like hungry to see like what comes next. And I would not be surprised if there's GitHub integration coming. Be good. Would be excellent. Todo still hasn't solved one, one long running gripe I have with it, which is that, well, a, an example would be a better way to explain this. Every day, I every work day, I have a task at 9 a.m to check my schedule and add more tasks to say like, what do you need to do today? Add some tasks. And in the upcoming view that pops up, it says today, check your schedule. So I do it. And then I press the button that checks it off. And then it just drops down to tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's like, I want it to go away. I can't do tomorrow's tasks today. Yeah. Uh, certain ones, not all of them, but these, especially these repeating ones, it's like, I cannot take out the trash in advance. Yep. I have to wait until Friday. So you need to just not do it until the day of. And so certain tasks should have a toggle to hide until available. Yes, I could get, I support that. I can get behind that. I just can't see a case where not doing that would make sense. Like almost any task that recurs like that, you can't do in advance. That's the nature of the task. Because another one, you know, is an annual task, like like, uh, submitted your taxes. You know, I can't start next year's taxes until next year. It doesn't make any sense to work on these things in advance. So I can't see why you want them to show up. I think that the view of this needs to be able to toggle. So sometimes when I look at the mm, upcoming okay. section, I want to get an overview of my day. Like, what does my tomorrow look like? Mm-hmm. And that's a good point. I, and I don't mind that at that point in time when that's my frame of reference, seeing that I have this recurring task I do every morning. I like seeing that. Okay, yeah, at 9 o'clock, I'm going to do this. I do that every morning. What's coming afterwards? However, there's sometimes you look at the upcoming to see what can i what can i work on now like i'm all clear for today 
but I still have some time left in the day. Let me grab a task from tomorrow and just knock it out. And mm. when that's the case, I don't want to see the things that I can't possibly work on, like you mentioned. Yeah, that's it's very wise, Greg. We should promote you to CEO of Todoist. No, that would be incorrect move and result <laughs> in disaster and pain and suffering. <laughs> Uh, I don't know who would work out. <laughs> so anyways, all circling back here is I will try the Spark email client uh, for my personal email after the show. All right. I would love to hear your opinions. I think I'm going to feel good about it. It's definitely the highest recommended. If you just go to DuckDuckGo or Google and say, you know, best email apps, like Spark is always listed very high, really, really high. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, it does have some real niceties. The fact that you can only log in or you can log into each account just once on one device and it propagates to all the devices you're logged into Spark on, that's like near magical. I've been very impressed with that. So mm. it's pretty easy to set up. Nice. Okay, cool. What's next? Well, I don't know. We've been talking about task tracking, so maybe I can I can quickly talk about meal tracking. Okay. On which I have an update. So I have... I have been working on trying to do meal tracking for probably more than a year. More, Probably for more than a year, I've been, like, interested in doing it. And then I've only actually managed to do it at all for, like, a day or two at a time. And it is truly exhausting. I hate it. But I was, I was introspecting recently about why I struggle so much. And part of it is the actual mundane task of writing down everything you eat i use an app that reports calories but then you it's almost worse using an app sometimes because then you have to like search for a food that is similar to the food you're eating so like home cooking is impossible which kind of hummus is this uh you know i I just find that very frustrating it almost encourages you to eat frozen meals because you can just scan them and be done but i try not to but i realize the other part of it is it's so discouraging. Like every day I usually have one time where I break and eat just total junk food and it'll be like 1200 calories and instant death. You know, these, these, uh, apps report back to you how bad the food was. Yes. And it's like, you have consumed seven days worth of saturated fat. (laughs) You just ate the next three days worth of calories in one. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That is exactly right though. And it is so defeating. Like I sort of think this should be a, this is the job for like a, a behavior specialist or something to figure out how to make those messages less defeating because I realize that is the main thing that is stopping me. Yep. I don't like the tracking, but if I don't track, I do the same things and I probably eat worse, but I don't get that really negative feedback. And so it feels worse. What I need is for the tracking to feel good because it does make me eat better. So this week, I mean, the tracking still didn't make me feel good, but I just put my head down. And I was like, I'm doing every weekday this week. And I did. I logged everything I ate from Monday to Friday. And that is probably twice as long as my previous high score in tracking foods. And the deal I made with myself was I don't track weekends. Mm. So this this coming week, I'm going to try to do the same thing. You just got to get to midnight Friday. Because at midnight Friday, I then, I was just like craving junk food. And I ate like peanut butter and oats. Um, which isn't i mean admittedly not terrible for you but it is a ton of saturated fat and i was hungry and it's really hard to quantify peanut butter like another problem with these peanut butter is killer you get a scoop of peanut butter and that's way way more calories than you anticipate oh well there's that but i don't even mean Uh, ah you mean just finding the peanut butter in the tracking system 
Well, I mean, how much did I eat? It's like, oh, peanut butter, 1.5 tablespoons. It's like, I don't know. Like, how much fits on a scoop? <laughs> yeah, so I have quite a bit of experience in this space. So uh, a few years ago, and you're you're aware of this, part of this, but I was went full on food tracking for my health. And it was very successful experience. But one is it takes a ton of discipline and work. It's just not easy, frankly. It's not easy to account for everything that you put into your body, which is why I eventually like fell off the wagon. And it's something I've been trying to get back onto, but I've not been able to quite capture my success that I did before. But one of the things I'm going to say was going to say to your point of one and a half tablespoons is the serving size. That is just total bull. It doesn't work at all. The way you have to do this, if you want to be serious about it, and it really depends on what your level of interest is and the accuracy of the data that you're collecting, is that if you want to be accurate, you just have to weigh your food straight up. And you need to get wow. a, you have to get a food scale. And when you cr- get a scoop of peanut butter, you put a small bowl on your food scale and you put that peanut butter into the bowl. And you see how many grams is this? And what does the jar say? Because every time it'll say one and a half tablespoons. But in that in parentheses, it will say the actual grams or ounces of, of mm. the food that you can actually eat to get this nutrition, this much nutrition. And that's how you do it well. That's the only way you can do it well. With something like peanut with something like peanut butter is very deceptive too. That's one where I would say you can easily screw up your diet. If you are doing this for trying to get a calorie deficit. Peanut butter is an easy, easy way to really screw yourself uh, up. I have noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was aware of that already. Yeah. Yeah. I would say for five years of my life, 75% of my calories were peanut butter. Mm. <laughs> That's quite odd. Probably, probably the entire way through college and the first year that I lived in Cincinnati. Wow. Well, and I love, <laughs> I mean, I, I love, I don't think butter, that's actually so. true. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, me too. But I really like peanut butter. But so it's something too, where it's like, you know, growing up, I'm slapping together PB and J. It's just like two, two and a half knife fools, like whatever it is to like get a nice coat yeah. of peanut butter. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Nice and thick. Yeah, exactly. No, that is the wrong way to go about this. If you are trying to get accurate data and to create a calorie deficit for yourself, you have to weigh your food. And I, I got as, I got as far as like, I weighed everything. I was weighing everything for a while and even frozen items. So if I was going to make frozen food, I would weigh that food before I prepared it so that what's the purpose of that. So say it's something like, uh, for example, um, like frozen chicken fingers. Okay. Okay. It'll say on the bag two, three chicken fingers is the serving size. But when you weigh the chicken fingers, you will see that that is not the case. Like sometimes you can add an extra chicken finger. Sometimes Mm. you take away, you have to cut one and a half or take it away because it's too big and if like i said if you want to get it accurate you have to you got to just measure how much the food weighs and and even then that's still just a that's a good approximation it's not a precise measurement but it's a much better approximation than what you're getting from those you know x number or x number of scoops x number of whatever on the back of the bag so that's really interesting because it seems like yeah your approach is really maximized accuracy but i i've tried to be a little bit cognizant of the trade-off between accuracy and likelihood of continuing yes you know because i do think that i could drive myself crazy yep and actually one advantage that the peanut butter disaster has had is that a lot of these foods that are hard to quantify 
are actually things that that I tend to eat in large quantities because of that. Like it is the, those two things are inextricably tied together. Like with peanut butter, it's really hard to know like what is an appropriate serving size. And so I'll, you know, certainly sometimes I'll just crave peanut butter and eat like eight tablespoons. I mean, I don't even know how much a tablespoon is a huge amount of peanut butter, you know, like a totally ridiculous amount. But once I have done tracking, it's like, not only am I going to have to feel bad about writing down that I ate 10,000 calories of peanut butter, but also it's just annoying. It's like, yes. how many spoonfuls was that? And that chore has really discouraged me from eating some of those, those like bulk foods. Mm. And instead I'm eating a lot more things that are discreet, which still isn't perfect. Cause like hummus is something I would consider good for me, but hummus has the same problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at least it's, it's been kind of helpful to discourage me from eating things with a spoon. It's like, and also one thing I found is it makes me lay out how much I'm going to eat in advance. Because I hate the tracking so much, I try to track before I eat. Yes, that is critical, I believe, to success. I used to do the same thing. When I was really in the groove of doing it, I would wake up and as a part of my morning routine, I would fill out my day's meals. Oh, wow, that's really in advance. Yes, I would do breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and and snacks. I'd say, these are the things I'm going to eat. And doing so, well, one is you can be deliberate. Like, okay, at lunch, I'm going to eat like a little worse, but I make up for it by skipping a snack today or eating a better dinner. So one is like, you can kind of, you can sort of balance the scales, so to speak, of exactly how you're going to consume food that day. And what I will circle back though, backing away from this topic and say, I totally agree that you can absolutely drive yourself crazy if you're looking to get, do this precisely. The reason that I did it this way was because my entire intention, I was not interested in the data for the data's sake or even like analyzing it later for some, just to see how things are going. I was laser focused on, I am doing this to lose weight. I need a calorie deficit. Each pound of fat is 3,500 calories. So if I want to lose a pound a week, I have to create a calorie deficit of 3,500 a week. So you can do that through a combination of eating and exercise and eating is going to be the, is going to be the way to go. There is not a way you can exercise enough to create that calorie deficit and leave and eat whatever you want. It's never going to happen. So when I came to that realization of, okay, exercising is good because it's, it's just, it's good to exercise your muscles. It's good to uh, train your, your cardiovascular like capabilities But if you really want to lose weight, you have to focus on the food and you have to focus, you have to be laser focused on exactly what you're eating and how much of it you're eating. And what does that translate to into nutrition? How many calories is it? Is it enough protein? Is it enough fats? Is it enough carbohydrates to really get you through your day? So that was my motivation. And so that's why I took it really seriously. Mm -hmm. And that's what is something I would say is really you need to think First, what is your motivation behind this? Why do you want to do this? And from there, decide what level of rigor are you going to apply to this part of your life? And you you mentioned a couple times now of saying like you feel like you go on a binge, right? And you eat a bunch of peanut butter. And then you're like, well, one, it's annoying to log it. But it's always annoying to log just straight up in my opinion. Like it's there's the applications aren't great, unfortunately. They're not they're not the worst thing ever, but. It really took a lot of work to like learn how to log well with the application. And then the other thing is like you feel bad about it. 
and that yeah. is like a that is such a true it's a real feeling it's uh and, and it's not enjoyable but something i learned when i did it like going through this process and it's something i picked up from a subreddit called lose it um is like you like one is quit associating like bad feelings to a mistake like everyone makes mistakes like don't feel defeated and say i'm well one i don't care about the rest of this day and two i don't care about logging because it was such bad like i'll just start tomorrow their advice and i think it it worked for me it's like no log everything even if it's terrible log it um and one because you're going to build up the practice of you always log you always log everything that you eat and two when you go into tomorrow you understand in a in a better way what actually happened yesterday and where do I go from here? Now that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean you don't eat anything the next day to like make up for it, but it just puts into perspective where you are and sort of like takes away that feeling of failure. Cause it's like, you didn't fail. Like you're still logging your food. You're still tracking. Like you hit a bump in the road yesterday. That doesn't mean today can't be a good day. So those are just some tidbits of advice, I guess, to, to some of the things you've brought up and what you're saying. So I guess, what is your motivation? Like, why do you want to track your food? Well, I think that there's probably some long-term benefits to just being more mindful about what I'm eating because I know that I I am sometimes mindful and then sometimes not at all, but forcing myself to think about it every time is probably going to be beneficial. But yeah, my my goal is probably to lose some weight. And also, I would like to be eating I don't know, like I really hate the like clean food word. I don't know why that's what came to mind, but just like a general healthier diet in a way that will make it easier to feel good all the time. Which is, you know, it's not purely attributable to food, but I think that eating less sugar in particular will probably have benefits to just my state of being. So things like that, being more careful about it. I'm not I'm not looking to drop like an enormous amount of weight, but I would like to run a slight deficit if I can. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. What app did you use? So I used MyFitnessPal. I tried a couple and the one I landed with was MyFitnessPal. Okay, that's what I used too. But they've slowly took more and more features away over time and like want you to subscribe and pay for premium. Oh, like what did they have in the past? So there used to just be more customization available around how you log and exactly like when you like how the example that comes to mind is like these macro nutrients. Oh yeah. You'd be like, I want these goals associated with my macronutrients. And then like at any point in the day, I want to be able to see like, where am I at? And I feel, I believe they took away that type of view. Now it's like, just shows a lock symbol. And they're like, if you want this, if you want, now it just shows you like how many calories you've consumed and it shows you like everything you've eaten. So if you want to add it up yourself, you can see, I think I have looked at this. It still does give you the macro breakdown. Like what percent of your calories were protein versus carbs versus fat. But where it it prevents you from getting more details if you click on one of those, it'll say mm. you could with premium see what co- what foods are mostly contributing to this area, but it doesn't give you ways to drill down and get productive feedback in that way. Gotcha, yeah. So I um, over the time I used it, I'd noticed that it's still a totally serviceable app, and if you're not paying for premium, you will you can track your. Uh, you can track your food and see where you at are from a macro view of calories um, and overall nutrition. But I, I may try some others because I actually really hate it. And I am somewhat loyal to Under Armour because their running app is very good and I have used it for many years. But um, yeah, the the fitness one, it's just full of, of really 
bad ads and it mm-hmm. always takes yep. you to the wrong screen. This is such a pet peeve. Yes. But when you open it, it takes you not to the screen where you log food, but to like the the feed Home. screen. Yeah. Yeah, it's the feed screen. You're like, I don't care about any of this. This yeah. is supposed to be my logging app. Like, don't show me any. And they also try to tie in a community aspect, which I think could work for some people, but they really put it front and center. They're like invite people yeah. and share all the time that you're like what you log today and all this. And it's like Ethan just ate four jars of peanut butter. Peanut butter, yes. I need to put that out on all my feeds. Everyone needs to be aware of where I'm at in the my my jars of peanut butter for the day. No, I'm not a fan of that. I took a and I imagine there are it's maybe an even split. Like some people need a community aspect to this. Like they need to have sort of a support community where they're sharing and communicating and seeing other people's progress. For me, I was not like that at all. I didn't need that. I didn't desire that. I just wanted an, a system that was easy to log my food and see day by day, week by week, how I was doing. Mm. Now, the one feature I really did like with my Fitness Pal was that at the end of the day, so you can give it all of your stats, how much you weigh, how active you are, and where you want to be. And when you would log consistently, it would say, if you continue to behave like this, so if every day looked like today, in the next over the next five weeks, we project you will lose X pounds of of weight, and their their estimates weren't precise, but they were a, a general ballpark of like where you would end up, and were generally decent. That's interesting. I haven't found that. So when you complete a day. It will, if you've put your weight in and all of your other stats, when you complete a log for that day, it will show a screen that says, this is where you will be hmm. in five weeks, I think it is. Oh, I've never pressed that button. It says complete diary. I just let it roll on correct. the day. Yeah, so if you complete your diary for the day. And I used to find that very motivating. So I would see that number. Yeah, I could see that. Hmm. And I would say, that's a great number. Like, I want to be at that number in five weeks. Mm-hmm. And so I'm now motivated to make sure that tomorrow looks like today so that in five weeks I end up where I want to be. And that would actually often preempt me to say, okay, like I know I plan my meals in the morning, but I just saw this at the end of today. Like, let me think right now, what is it that I'm going to eat tomorrow? Yeah. And kind of start to put a skeleton like outline of like what I'm going to eat. And then in the morning I would double check that and like make edits and make a final copy of the day. And so that was one feature that I found super helpful for me was like uh, for my motivation and what I was aiming to do, seeing that view was was really, really helpful. I I will start using that. Yeah, that's actually a couple of things you said sound like they'll be very helpful. So I'll give another report next time, but that's encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely try other apps, see what other apps are up to. And it's because I haven't I haven't looked at the landscape in a long time, but I remember trying a number of them and landing back at my fitness pal saying, mm-hmm. like, actually, this is still the best one, despite the flaws. Interesting. All right. Well, I'll do some research and we'll see. Do you want to do one more topic? Yeah. Yeah, let's do one more. Anything jump out at you? Let's talk about the NBA. All right. Let's do it. NBA is back. This thursday i think yes yeah it's already started with the scrimmage games but yeah this thursday is the the play-in starts the play-in game start i have watched the highlights from a few scrimmages which interestingly are on youtube and man they're so weird they are i totally agree i've watched a few highlights as well 
yeah, I don't I don't know exactly why they feel so weird. I mean, some of it is that I don't watch NBA games that don't have stakes. And I think I have watched some players do things that I think they would not do in a real game, uh, just kind of messing around. So that contributes to part of it. But also, it just looks wrong. Everything about it looks wrong. The courts don't look normal. And then, of course, there's no fans. And the players on the bench are not sitting together on a bench. They're spaced out in, like, a checkerboard pattern. Mm-hmm. Really weird. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also interesting. The one Some of the clips I saw, it had at the top of the screen four commentators. And you could see their video feeds. Oh, like it had their video feed, and then maybe perhaps this was just because it was a scrimmage, like that won't be the standard approach. But when you're normally watching a basketball game, it's just the basketball. Yeah, you're not like seeing the commentators' faces and expressions, and as they talk back and forth to one another. I had this funny moment where I turned on a scrimmage on YouTube, and I started watching, and I was like, "This feels so wrong. I don't like this," and I couldn't put my finger on it. I thought, "Is it?" Is it the court? Is it the fans? And I realized, no, I always mute the announcers and I have to listen to the announcers right now. Like I'm so out of basketball mode that I forgot to mute the sound and I'm listening to people announce the game. And Mm. it's just become so core to me that I automatically mute every sporting event I watch. I never listen to the announcers. And I, this was my first time doing it. And I was like, this is terrible. (laughs) I hate this. You're out of practice. You're out of rhythm. You're uh, these are yeah. the these games are for us as well. That's true. Our practice. Yeah, there were some uh there were some random people on the teams actually because I watched Clippers Magic, I think. And there was this really big dude with bad hair and I was like, is that Joe Kim Noah? And indeed it was on the Clippers. Wow. So, yeah, who knows who will be unearthed during this time where teams are desperate to fill their rosters Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i saw some clips of uh bowl bowl playing oh yeah yeah and well one it was pretty impressive stuff for my first looks at him he's getting rebounds off the board dribbling up the court and shooting a three at seven foot wow i don't even know his height seven foot two or something like that yeah i know it was impressive but uh he wasn't playing before Right. Like he was injured. I didn't think so. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't play at all. So like there's been some interesting developments that since the season got delayed, like another one I saw and I haven't followed up with this, but I saw initial reports like uh, Jokic of the Nuggets Mm -hmm. was in like had gotten really good shape. Like he had lost a number of pounds and he was like, yeah, I heard about this. Yeah. So the point being is a number of things have changed since there was time off. And uh, I'm not fully caught up, but I imagine there will be games where I tune in and I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Like, who is that? And it'll be like, I didn't recognize them because their appearance has changed or it's actually a new player that wasn't playing during the regular season yeah. when it was ongoing. No, Jason Tatum has a beard and I didn't recognize him. See, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of players have beards, I noticed. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to take some adjustment. Yeah. So that's pretty cool, though. I, I look forward to seeing more Bowl Bowl and also just seeing <laughs> basketball come show like show back up and that'll be fun. No, I wonder if the games. Well, one is are they pumping in fake noise? Into oh, I don't know what they now? decided on that. I remember mm-hmm. hearing about it. So I tuned into the Reds game yesterday for for a little bit, and I don't watch bas- uh, I don't watch baseball very often, if ever. But uh, flipped it on, and it was second season of this sixty season abbreviated sixty game season that's you know abbreviated season and they are pumping in fake noise like that's mm. what the mlb is doing and it was kind of weird from a viewer perspective because like you can cl- see clearly there's no 
there's nobody in the stadium but when they're at bat you're just hearing this low roar like this low rumble as if people are in the stadium talking or whatever and they still play the sound effects like charge and whatever like blow horns and other things like no one's there though to participate in yeah you know just a weird weird thing that makes me think of I'm I'm very critical of the sports or pseudo sports where you're not supposed to make noise as a fan. And so tennis and golf come to mind because here well here's here's what I have always said, you know. You're sort of assuming that your sport is harder than other people's sports or like something is different that requires absolute concentration, but all the other athletes like I have no reason to think that, you know, all the other athletes have to deal with all these distractions and like welcome to sports. We're just weirdly babying these particular athletes in a couple <laughs> couple genres. But actually, I think this weakens my argument because it almost seems like the the players in these other sports are so dependent on the noise that they've become accustomed to that they need it, which is really no different than silence at that point. It's like everybody is just so particular about how things must be in order right. to play, right. which is really weird. No, I think it does weaken your argument because my understanding is that the players want it. It's they're used to yeah. hearing this and it would feel weird if they didn't. So They have put the, well, they have started putting rims back up in Chicago, in the oh. Chicago parks, which has been very big. I haven't actually gone to one yet, but I'm thinking maybe before work a couple of days this week, early in the morning when nobody's out, I might go. See if they're, well, you don't know if nobody will be out. The rims have been down. So soon, you know, everyone might That's be true. flocking to the courts. Well, you know, it's just funny because um, they have put them up strategically. Like, I, I've actually been very impressed. They So imagine, like, two parallel basketball courts, full-court basketball courts. Um, so, like, the right sideline of one is next to the left sideline of the other. They have put up diagonal rims. They haven't put up all four. They've just oh. put up two, but one on each court and opposite and diagonal of each other. Um which is actually pretty smart. So that I've noticed that in a couple different parks now. So it's just half court and it doesn't mean it gets crowded. You know, there's well crowded in the sense that like there's not an open court, but it prevents crowding in the sense of a bunch of people being on the court at the same time. Uh, so not, not a terrible idea, but it's funny because the other half of the court gets totally unused or somebody will go there and like jump rope or do weird exercise things from what I've seen. Mm, I see. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure. I can see their intention. I'm not sure it really solves a problem, though. Yeah, I kind of agree. It's like, if we want to play five on five, like, we'll just do it half court, I guess. Like, Yeah, which is worse, yeah. yeah. No, you're, you're probably right. <laughs> but that is that is interesting. But yeah, so I'm excited for the NBA to come back. I'm looking forward to seeing some basketball. Uh, yeah, me go too. Go Bucks. <laughs> go Spurs. <laughs> they won't make the playoffs. It'll be sad. Well, All right. great episode, Ethan. Well done, Greg.